But I think everything's pretty much moving towards multi-jet fusion and like the DLS processes and stuff. They're just stronger, they're more durable. You know, everything gets broken on a on an assembly line, right? So in those manufacturing environments, you really need something pretty durable. Welcome back to For the Future. I'm your host, Mark. And this is Michael. Today we have an action-packed episode full of 3D printing. So we're going to go over kind of the past, present, and future of 3D printing. Michael's going to shed some light on quite a few of these acronyms and all the the nitty-gritties. And today we're actually going to skip the news, the Industry 4.0 news, because we have quite a bit to go over and I want to make sure we get it all presented in a timely fashion. If you have no idea what a 3D printer is, uh, take a second, pause this, go to the YouTube app, look up what is 3D printing, watch a video or two, um, and then come back to this. And it may be helpful even to have a web browser open if you're sitting at a desk and just like Google some of these terms that we're bringing up because it might you know shed some more light on the situation for you and uh, might make this podcast just a little bit more enjoyable for you and less confusing. <laughs> we'll try to try to keep it concise and roll right through this. So, so <laughs> actually to start off with the history of 3D printing, which funny enough, I learned quite a few things um, going through this. There were a couple of, I think I had the gist of most of these stories, but um, it was interesting to kind of play trivia with history with Mark here before the episode. Yeah. So I definitely learned a couple of things, got my stories straightened out. Um, pretty interesting here. So I'll just say like right off the bat, I had thought that Stratasys invented um, 3D printing. That would be Scott and Lisa Crump up in uh, Eden Prairie, actually. So interestingly yeah. enough, pretty close to where Mark and I both went to school. It was interesting to see that. And I had thought he was using weed whacker filament, essentially like the uh, the nylon string, because it looks a lot like filament that we like we know it today. Um, it does, but actually, yeah. it was a, a hot glue gun with a polyethylene and hot glue mixed together and he he wanted to make a, a toy frog for his uh his daughter so kind of interesting but interestingly enough printing was really invented about 10 years earlier um by the by uh hideo kodama kodama um and that was it was a uv light hardened material so i didn't know that um and 10 years is a lot <laughs> right like way, before strat- way before stratasys so that's pretty interesting yeah so in 1980, Hideo Kodama has the first 3D printing patent. In 1983, Charles Hull actually invented the SLA machine, and he was one of the founders of 3D Systems Corporation. Were you kind of under the impression that FDM was like the first iteration of 3D printing? I kind of, yeah, I guess I kind of thought it was. I knew 3D Systems was really old as well, like one of the original players, but I, mm-hmm. I had thought it was like a similar time frame or um like right after or something like that i just you know um going to school in minnesota though maybe you just hear the story of stratasys inventing 3d printing right and it's like well actually 3d systems was kind of first but um yeah so anyway no that's interesting i knew those two were kind of the big two like old school players um but very interesting there so anyway, they go on from that and apparently uh, metal like uh, DLMS or as it's called here in this article was late was LAM for laser additive manufacturing, 
like as we know it today, it's direct laser metal sintering is referring to this technology. But Aromat was uh, doing the first metal printing, essentially. And that was 1997. So that's pretty interesting. That's so crazy. I, I, to me, all these technologies, I feel like happened within the last 10 years or something. But it's yeah. little do I know, like it's way where like I was two. <laughs> that's yeah. yeah, this is old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it, it's it's uh a lot of people say that, like, you know, you're presenting it, um, presenting out to metal, talking about printing or whatever. And a lot of people say that they're like, oh, well, printing's been around for about 10 years. It's like it's been in the news for about the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, and funny enough, like when I started getting into it, my dad was like 3D printing. You mean like those like those uh, those chalk printers in the back of the engineering room or whatever? And I'm like, what are you talking about? So eventually, like, <laughs> you know, I went to like a bring your kid to work day or whatever. And yeah. uh so what they used to do is they printed gypsum and so they would basically it would jet like glue into gypsum powder and you would get these like big they're like they were rocks basically um but they were full color which was kind of cool um so and we're talking like 2008 2005 something like that um but they're, they're, it's an aerospace company and they would have like block manifolds and stuff printed out of this gypsum powder in like full color not the, and obviously they had all kinds of toys, their little brains and gears and stuff, but everything broke. That was the thing is like they were really like chalky brittle. and like they were brittle and like they couldn't huh. do anything with them. They were just models. But, you know, that was that was what it was to him. It was just like a cheap model making. Oh, it wasn't cheap. I guess I shouldn't say that it made cheap feeling parts that just broke and everyone had a bottle of super glue to put them back together every time they got knocked over. So so anyway, that was kind of what it was to like, even to an engineer. Right um back then like some engineering companies kind of were into it not in any sort of like production way so but in general 3d printing has been around for like 30 years um actually more like 40 if you count the the original patent but like really you could buy like an engineering firm that wanted to invest into something had some leftover money at the end of the year or something um they could have bought a printer over about the last 30 years so then in two years later in 1999 Wake Forest Institute of Regenerative Medicine actually printed the first urinary bladder, and that was the the first three D printed organ. Which again, all these these years are just mind blowing to me. That nineteen ninety nine, they were printing organs. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that's that's really interesting. Um, it's interesting that it was that long ago. Um, and uh, I'm I'm curious what they were you know how well that went or whatever because it's not really a it's not a mainstay right like you don't that's not a common operation piece that goes on um, exactly. I think what's more common right now is they're printing models for practicing surgery so they'll print like a model like if they can't get a hold of a cadaver or something um, for surgeons mm-hmm. to practice on and that's actually a more common like actual use for like printing models of. Um, of organs and stuff like that. And I, I could be wrong about that, but from as far as I know, it's essentially, it's all still research based and people are working on, um, you know, there was the 3d printed ear that like they regrew with skin cells and stuff like that. Um, but in general, how it works is they print like a biocompatible like gel. And sometimes that's even suspended like in a liquid so that it doesn't like fall apart. And then they um. inoculate it with, um, they inoculate with human, like your cells. And the idea is it, it behaves like a scaffold for the cells to grow into. And so then it, it, if you're looking for a replacement, I guess, body part or like an organ or something, the idea is that it would be a 100% compatible replacement. Whereas like if you get a donor and whatever without, you know, 
even even something that looks compatible at first like 10 years later can fail right um whereas this would be your own like stem cells in your body would have produced it so it's 100 compatible so that's the idea um i'm pretty certain that it's not like a common medical procedure right now it's still in research phase but interesting that's been going on for 20 years um i had thought it was a lot newer than that as well so going back to stratasys uh as we recall in 1989 they had the first patent for fdm fused deposition modeling printing in 2009 their fdm patent expired and like what i've kind of what i've read is that you know once that happened the market kind of opened up and 3d printer prices dropped drastically yeah and that's i think that's why most people see like 10 years ago as like when they know of 3d printing because that's when all the kickstarters happen that's when lots and lots of companies i mean that's you went from like probably five or 10 big names or, you know, maybe 20 or 30 big name companies to like hundreds. There were hundreds and hundreds of companies that were <laughs> IPOing and launching, you know, launching printers. And, you know, it was just a, it was just a free for all. <laughs> um, and a lot of those companies don't exist anymore. So, you know, that's kind of how it goes. Whole, you know, burst of a new industry. And then it's kind of settled out a little bit again. But yeah, that was the first burst. And the funny thing is, or not the funny thing is, but industry you can see like the improvements in 3d print like fdm printers specifically is marked in about like one two three year increments and it's literally as stratus's patents run out the the industry will integrate a new piece like then so like in 2015 um we were all waiting for the heated enclosure patent to go up so stratus like the reason why they were able to print abs parts so well is they had, they had a patent on like printing the parts in a heated enclosure. So they actually had a heater, like a like a space heater yeah. that would blow and warm up the environment around the part so it wouldn't crack and wouldn't fail before it had time to cool down. Um, they had a patent on that. And it and essentially it just kept all like you couldn't, what was it? You couldn't like you couldn't keep the motors cool. So like there was no way to get around the patent. And oh. everyone was just waiting for that. The other cool one was the continuous belt. So instead of having a Y axis where the bed slid back and forth, the idea was to just have a belt that would run back and forth or a belt that could run and roll the parts. Like, like imagine two rollers, like a conveyor belt with like a, like a tight, um, like a fibrous belt that you'd print onto. And then when the part was done, it could just roll forward and it would peel the parts off into a bucket. So you could have continuous printing. So that oh. patent just went up. That might have been only in the last like three, four or five years. And so now there's all kinds of like like infinite like Z infinite Y axis printers that are coming out and printers that can um, do like continuous production. So it'll it'll print, you know, you can print one part. So you can you have low chance of failure printing one part. And then when it's done, it'll just roll forward and kick the part off into a bucket and then it'll reset and keep printing. So those are a couple like the big ones. I think there's a whole bunch of them, but you know, Stratus has started patenting all sorts of stuff like 20, 25 years ago or whatever. And like the industry has just been waiting for these patents to go up. So um, that's why the FDM market. Now the printers are just amazing. I mean, for 250 bucks, you can get a Creality um, like or like an Ender 3 or whatever from Creality. And they're just compared to the printer that I bought in 2013. Um, like Mark, it was uh, kind of funny. Mark was putting notes together and he bolded in 2013 Michael Build's first 3D printer. 
um which is kind of funny that i'm like on the history that's like accurate right you didn't like get it in like it wasn't like you plug and go in you like no 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 no. there was no there was no pre-built machines man it was all i mean like it was kind of put together but it was like you had to like reflash the board so i'm like you know eight like 17 or 18 trying to figure out like usb protocols and i'm on (laughs) forums trying to like download these like sketchy usb serial patches and i'm like what is going on (laughs) with this it took me weeks to get the thing to print anything at all. I mean, like it was not yeah. a plug and play thing. You know, I had to learn all sorts about like motors and like it was just it was a mess. But eventually got it to work and um, ended up being a pretty solid little machine. Solid doodle represent if uh, if you ran one of those machines back in the day. They don't exist anymore. They uh, their company failed a while ago. But um, that was the first machine. And uh, it was a piece of junk compared to today's standards. <laughs> <laughs> I think back then I paid like a thousand dollars or like eight hundred bucks or something for it, which was a lot of money to someone who was you know seventeen yeah. or eighteen coming out of high school. And uh, I always give my parents uh, crap for this, but they thought it was like the dumbest thing that I was taking like up basically everything I made working a summer job and bought a 3D printer with it. And they're like, "That is the dumbest thing. You've got books to buy. You've got classes <laughs> like." What the hell are you doing? And, and I was like, I know this is the right thing to do. I'm doing it. And they're like, all right, well, we think you're wrong. And then it, you know, turned into a whole thing. So I still give it really a whole career. Jeez. Yeah. kind of quite literally shoot. It's coming up on uh, 10 year anniversary is coming up since I bought my machine. I wish I still had it, True. but it was a giant steel like box. And I'm like, I'm not carrying this around from apartment to apartment or whatever anymore. So I got rid of it a couple of years ago now, but, um, <laughs> So yeah, that was 2013 and we're still talking like plywood and like a acr- like cut acrylic like sandwiched yeah. together to like make hot ends and like and extruders and stuff and I mean it was just it was just bad. Um, by <laughs> by today's standards it was like it you know took you weeks to figure you to reflash everything and like if you had the wrong like type of USB cable they wouldn't work and I mean you had to you know there wasn't Amazon back then you had to like go to the Best Buy and buy different cables and just hope one of them worked and there was all <laughs> kinds of and there was just tons of goofy stuff like that so anyway compare like the amount of progress that they've made in seven or eight years um, and then the price has fallen by like five times I mean it's just amazing like you know I mean you can set the machines up now they come flat packed you can like high schooler could put them together in five minutes you plug them in, they just work. You like load the spool of filament in, plug them in, hit go. And like, it'll print a part for you. Like within an hour, mm-hmm. you'll have a, a part yeah. printed from a machine and like for 200 bucks. So, you know, it's just, it, that's really, really amazing. And that's 2021 now. I mean, over the last, I mean, even like 2019, the machines were amazing like that. So, and they just keep getting better and better. Um, so anyway, interesting stuff there. I feel like one big thing to note is that MakerBot, I feel like that's the company I had heard of. Maybe it was probably through you, but like MakerBot oh. had like their do-it-yourself kits. And in addition to that, they ran a file library called Thingiverse. And I remember like in college going on that website with you and just like looking at all these 3D models that people had made. And you could literally just download them and start printing them. So like mm-hmm. that was it was a cool community-based kind of thing, right? That yeah. MakerBot set up. Yeah. So Maker MakerBot launched that. They were also one of the pioneers of a similar, I mean, um, solid doodle probably copied i think they copied the first like first like our second or third version of the maker bot which was a very very popular printer i mean that's like what most people got now it was just like mm-hmm. 
think they were like $2,000 back then. So I'm like, okay, well, the solid doodles are pretty close to the same thing as a lot less. So, um, but like everybody copied MakerBot. I mean, like they, you know, it was him and like Prusa. Those were the two, like in 2010, 2011, those were the machines. Um, and they were plywood. They were, you know, uh, they were nothing like what you see today. But yeah, they invented Thingiverse back then. Um, really, really cool idea. And that started the whole economy. Like there are people who make a living like, designing parts now like online they like put them up on the internet and people just like donate money and they just say hey thanks for designing that new fan shroud or whatever i mean like people people do that like for a living so they created that and then um stratus has also bought them it looks like in 2009 i'm not sure about the year actually i didn't for some reason i didn't put a year there okay stratus has bought them eventually though i think that was later i think that was more like when had to have been been saying 12 or 13 ish Seem, that feels about right. Like when I about when I was going to college, that feels about right. But anyway, so yeah, Stratus has bought them. That launched a great couple of great machines, um, and then they had like the Generation Five. I think is the one that um, that didn't do so well. So that's kind of the history there, and that would have been like 2015. So then, just a couple of years ago, and probably still today, like patents are always expiring, and with that, the market keeps opening up. And I mean, there's easily over 100 different 3D printing companies now. So it's just way more accessible for anyone and everyone to try and get in. I I know I have a friend who bought a 3D printer. I actually don't know what one. Oh, he reached out to you, actually. He was asking, uh, you know, what what 3D printer should he get? This is a while ago. But he he did get one and he, you know, just, oh, I need this. Like, I'll just go print it. I think he was, Mm -hmm. didn't you print a Catan set once? (laughs) Yeah, I did that for uh for a christmas present at one point yeah yeah i think that was like one of the things he was like yeah i think i'm gonna i'm gonna print a Catan set i was like yeah michael's done that (laughs) yeah it was that was a that was a pain in the butt of a project i didn't pick like an easy one to make i printed one with like all the little details and i think you were supposed to paint it yeah they had little itty bitty trees and like it was just a pain in the butt to print and then like parts were just they were just a pain in the butt to fit into a box so it just was easier to use a real Catan set but it was really cool to play with like once or twice (laughs) (laughs) and then i found out well you still have to buy a Catan set i think the original idea was to not have to buy the Catan set and save the money and like i'll just print it and it's like well you don't have cards and you don't have (laughs) like you can't play the game without that stuffs and you can't print any of that so so anyway it didn't work out as well as i thought it would but it was still pretty cool it's a novel thing yes of course yes so then to move on from the history of things so that's a brief overview um you know nowadays you've got 30 or so metal printing companies that are really big players you've got 10 or 15 uh printers in plastic now the thing that makes it more complicated is there are many different kinds of printing technologies within each each material field and we'll just say composites and metals is like the two um the big ones right so for metals what you've got now is dlms which is direct laser metal sintering and i mean i'll kind of say it's a thing is uh they've got like an fdm type process where you can print like a wax bound metal powder through like an fdm type printer you can Mm. make like a green cast part um and then you then you put that like into a a wash station like remove the wax with like a chemical or something and then you center put that into a sintering oven like the parts shrink and like turn into like sintered metal parts i would say those are the two major ones um i'll save the binder jetting metal printers for the future bit 
But I would say that those two are the real major ones. Um, DLMS is industrial. That's your medical. That's your uh, 3D printed implants and kneecaps and things like that. Um, aerospace parts, jet fuel nozzles, um, those couple of wind cases you've heard there. Uh, hydraulic manifolds are a big application now too for weight savings. Um, so those kinds of things. And then for plastics, you've got what we call multi-jet fusion technologies. Um, we'll touch on a new player in that field, but at the moment, it's really just HP's technology in that space. Um, and then you've got like a carbon 3D, like a DLS type process where that's a masking process with UV curable resins and plastics. What does DLS stand for? Do you- so DLS stands for digital light synthesis. And essentially it's, the, these are the printers that print upside down. If you've seen like that Ted talk where he's talking about, you know, what if printers were 400 times faster? I think that's a classic one that a lot of people have seen, but he's talking about the types of printers where there's like a vat of goop. It's like a thick resin that essentially is like the base material and a plate comes down and L- in like an LCD screen, like imagine just a 4k panel, like your phone screen on like, especially those, the cheap ones that you can get on like Alibaba and stuff. Um, it's similar to that, but a little bit different. And so essentially it shines light, UV light at these, um, at this resin in selectively. And that's what creates the layer, but it does it all at once. And so these machines are just crazy fast when they print. I mean, they can print inches of Z height per minute. And the cool thing is it's not like an FDM printer where the, like a laser has to run around and draw the whole layer. It actually just does the whole layer all at once. So you can print a whole bed full of parts. And the same amount of time as one part in the middle. And that's, I think, a trend that we're seeing in the more, like, we'll call it like a digital printing process versus like an analog printing process. Um, but that's where things are going. So many printers. All the printers. So I would really say, I would say that those are the two main technologies and composites, right? Composites and plastics right now. So multi-jet fusion, I didn't really talk on that, um, what that is exactly. So to go into that one, very similar in the way of, um, the DLS process where it's a masking process, but instead of it being a liquid resin, it's powdered, it's powdered plastic. Um, and it's typically nylon 12. There's a couple other companies that are coming out with it, um, like EOS and form labs. It's unlike an EOS printer or, um, a form labs, uh, new SLS machine where it's lasers that are fusing the nylon powder selectively. So again, that's a lot like an FDM printer where it has to, the laser has to draw and run around and fill in all the layers of the parts. So you can imagine that process. If you've got more run path for the laser per layer, it's going to take longer to print the parts, right? Makes sense. Um, whereas with multi-jet fusion, basically it has big giant heaters in there. The entire nylon bucket is heated up to almost the melting temperature and then a jetting bar runs over. So you can imagine HP doing their giant plotter printers um, just took that technology and integrated it right into this. And instead of jetting ink onto paper, it jets an infrared absorbing uh, agent. Essentially it's a fluid. And that is what it lays down as a layer. And then the lamps that are over top um, add just enough energy to those to where you want the parts to fuse. So they do fuse and then it puts a little detailing agent like around the perimeter of the part. And that that fluid specifically is designed to reflect infrared light. 
And so that creates like a sharp barrier between the powder that you want to fuse and the powder that you don't want to fuse. So you get nice, sharp, um, precise edges essentially around your parts. So those are the two major like production, um, like costing type. Uh, if you're if you care about cost per part per pound of plastic of printed parts, um, those are the two major plastic printing technologies. Yeah, I guess we should state that right now in like the present for this present section, we are talking about kind of the industrial 3D printers, not really the the hobbyist ones anymore. Now we've we kind of covered that, you know, like there's so many different companies making all these different 3D printers, but now especially with what Michael's working on, like these are industrial printers meant to print a large quantity of parts with high quality. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to ask one question. Like, so for me, HP seems like a really random 3D printer company because I imagine they am printing paper. So what you kind of said is that they took the technology of like an inkjet printer that, you know, scans over the paper and dots all the different, you know, your letters. That's how an inkjet printer works. Like if you looked really close at one letter, it's just a ton of little dots of ink. And so this is just kind of using that technology, but in a 3D printer space now. Yep, exactly. It's the exact same. Um, I think they redesigned them to work at temperature a little bit because the the build volume is hot, um, like like I talked about before. But yeah, they they literally said, hey, all these jetting technologies and stuff, we make jetting nozzles. We've been doing that for a long time. And, our, and especially in our big plotting printers, we know how to do that. So they literally took one of the, you know, one of their higher end jetting nozzle sets and put it into a, um, and again, they're good at, they know a lot of stuff about XY gantries and, you know, running industrial stuff like that. Um, producing machines that, you know, print posters all day long, every day at like your Kinko's or whatever at down the street. Um, and they literally just got into it and they've been, so they've really been into it for about five years now. So they're starting to, you know, they're on their second and third gen machines at this point. Um, so they're starting to, you know, build a little bit of a track record. Um, I don't think they're, they're not bigger than EOS. Um, but the EOS numbers I've seen include metal printer sales as well. And I think it might just be metal printers, but EOS owns like 80% of the market. Um, I think that's for metal printing specifically. I'll, I'll qualify that, but EOS is a really, really big name in production 3d printing. And I'm going to say specifically metal printing. Um, I know they, they have a lot of sales and, a lot of machines in the field for plastics as well, though. So multi-jet is really kind of like a game-changing technology. It's um, it scales much nicer. It it like if you're trying to print a whole box full of parts, let's say you know you're you're talking about not printing like ten parts for a you know prototyping show or something that's coming up, and you're gonna have them you know finished up in a in a prototyping shop. Like we're talking about like we're printing five thousand fist-sized parts, and we need 500 of them, you know, roughly every month or whatever, or two, two runs every month or something like that. Like multi-jet is going to, is going to be able to do that for you, which is really cool. Um, super consistent. The parts are really strong and you don't have to worry about like support materials and they're, they're very, what I'll call isotropic. And so what that means is the part doesn't have like an orientation. Like, so with FDM parts, those layer lines that you get, unfortunately you get like the, the fusion between those layers is not nearly as strong as the just, you know, having the, the layer itself that's been melted together and is extruded all in one piece. The fusion between layers is significantly weaker than the material itself. So what you end up with, and then this is when you get into those carbon fiber materials and stuff, is that 
the layer will be very, very strong. But if you pull, if you created like a hook that's printed in the Z axis, it'll be super weak. It'll snap right away at like half the strength of the material. So multi-jet parts behave more like an injection molded part. Um, you know, there's a slight, there's a slight difference in strength that way, um, but very, very slim. They're also very high. They're very high resolution and like very high tolerance. So like the parts, like you can make an engineering print for a multi-jet fusion part with, with some caveats, but you can treat a multi-jet fusion part like an injection molded part as far as like documentation and control methodology and stuff like that, which is very different um, than how like a, like a Pertle Labs or, you know, like a, a service like that where, you know, you're doing a school project or something and you need some models made. You'll just call up Pertle Labs. They'll print it for you. You know, mail us your files. We'll print it for you. Where multi-jet fusion is different is you can get to the point where you're like, okay, the engineer can start putting tolerances on print and can have minimum strength requirements and can start doing stuff like that. Um, and you want them finished to a certain surface finish level. I mean, you can start getting to that level of detail with them, which is very different. Um, and as I'm learning, uh, that is a new, that's a new topic for the additive field to start tackling. Um, cause hmm. those service bureaus are not set up to take in like an engineering print and say, okay, we're going to buy these parts from you, but we expect them to meet the information on this drawing. All the, you got to be able, you've got to have the measurement equipment to measure these parts and they got to, they got to be correct. Um, so right now that's not how the industry works right now. You send an STL file off, they'll print whatever you send them and that's it. You just pay per cubic inch. If you want 10 of them, they'll apply a 10% cost reduction or something for a quantity discount. We'll get it to you in four to six weeks. It seems like a big investment to get into 3D printing if you're not going to do a lot of it. So you're talking companies that are like, I need, you know, 50 of these or something, and I don't need them every four weeks or something. Like it's just kind of a one-off thing. You're yeah, you're not going to invest all that money into that. So yeah, that is interesting. And I just wanted to talk like, so no company is doing like FDM 3D printing like like at an industrial level. Yeah, no, no, not the not like desktop. No one's. I mean. Yeah. The print forum thing, I think, was kind of a fad. I think it, you know, during COVID, people were printing the um, the face shields and stuff, and that was kind of cool. You know, that was a niche. That was a niche thing. It just sat, so happened to work. We were in a pinch, you know, but no consumer is going to want to pay money for an FDM print. Um, I think people like sell stuff on Etsy and stuff that they, sand, you know, whatever. Just not. You're not going to. I kind of say like you wouldn't go to Target and look at you know the the random stuff they have set out like in the the seasonal area for like random knickknacks for your house. You wouldn't, you wouldn't choose the FDM printed thing. It's not, mm. it's not beautiful. It's not consistent. There's going to be problems with it, right? There's gonna be bubbles in the plastic. And um, so no, not at that scale, really not like in a, not in like a commercial sense. Now there okay, are, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. Yeah. There are like really large format, um, you know, f- like six foot by eight foot by, you know, three foot tall, um, machines that feed metal or I'm sorry, plastic pellets and like sometimes short chop carbon fiber, like right into a hopper and are printing not with like a 0.4 millimeter nozzle, but like a four millimeter nozzle or like a 40 millimeter nozzle. So it's putting down like a two inch wide bead of plastic, kind of like on the size of a cement printer, like we've talked about yeah, yeah. Um, for printing houses. And so some people are doing like giant jigs and fixtures and like, um, using it for making molds for doing like carbon fiber layup. 
Um, because if you do like a really high strength, high temp plastic with a lot of carbon fiber in it, the reason why they like that is it behaves when it's easy, it's easy enough to machine and like you don't have to shave away a whole block of solid nylon. You can't even buy like a giant, like if you had to make a layup for like, you know, an F1 race car or something, right. And you're doing like the body, like the shell that's carbon fiber and you only need two of them. You're going to make two of them. How do you like, what do you carve the the mold out of to like lay the carbon fiber on, you know? Um, so the printer in that case can like create that mold and only put material where it needs to go. Um, and it does a good job with that. And the other nice thing is the, because of the carbon content, the, the thermal coefficient of expansion of the carbon fiber. So like when you put it in the oven between the oven or between the material, the carbon fiber layup and the mold, they will grow and shrink at the same rate. So you don't get like the mold doesn't separate from um, the carbon fiber mid bake. Cause for really oh, okay. high, for high strength, like resins and stuff, there's a bake process that goes with it. Yep. So that will tend to change shape at the same rate as a carbon fiber and you get a more accurate part out of it basically. So that's a big reason why a lot of people like to use that. Um, and people are just printing all sorts of giant stuff with it, which is pretty cool. I always think that stuff is awesome. I haven't found an application for it at work yet. If I could figure out how to how to sell the company on one and figure out how to use one, I would love one. Um, they're su- I think they're just really cool. You can print chairs. You can print giant stuff to put around the office or whatever now. Is that worth a quarter million dollar machine? I don't know. <laughs> I think it'd be really cool to play with. But uh, those, I would say that would be the only like industrial application for FDM really. Um, you know, I mean, but, but engineering groups are using it for modeling all the time. I think, you know, especially companies that are running at, you know, more industrial machines on the floor, they're also going to have a series of, um, form labs and, uh, you know, uh, Ultimakers and FDM, like desktop FDM, um, upstairs in the engineering wing for doing their quick prototyping. Because at the end of the day, those machines, if you just need one part, if you just want to try something quick, you're going to get a part in an hour and it's going to be great. You know, it's going to be great for doing fit up and trying trying stuff out now when it comes up to your design review and you want something nice that looks good for the executives and showing off to marketing and taking out to customers and doing that kind of thing then go get it printed on your multi-jet fusion machine right um get it made out of nylon it'll be tough it'll be strong it won't break if you drop it you know um you can machine it i mean it's just it's just a superior product but it's going to take a day or two to get it to you um that's kind of what we Mm -hmm. find so that's kind of going to be the difference. It's not like it's not like nobody's buying FDM machines. It's just they're not using them for like producing parts, I'll say. Um, and I think people are still trying to make jigs and fixtures and stuff for production, like manufacturing jigs and stuff. But I think everything's pretty much moving towards multi-jet fusion and like the DLS processes and stuff. They're just stronger. They're more durable. You know, everything gets broken on a on an assembly line, right? So in those manufacturing environments, you really need something pretty durable. Um, and FDM from what I've found, um, doesn't hold up over time. You just, even the carbon fiber, you know, the really nice materials, the nylons and stuff, they just, they don't hold together. And we've replaced those parts with a multi-jet fusion part and they're fine for years. Guys can wrench on them and, um, using them as holding fixtures for torque and stuff together. And they don't, they don't fall apart. So those are kind of where we are now with the industrial printers, and now moving on to like the future, where do you think we're going to be, you know, in the next five years or so? 
Yeah, and that's and that's a great question. I wish I could tell you with certainty, right? Because I would then know which of these companies that are going public <laughs> to invest into. Um, the reality is, is that additive is just moving. I mean, imagine like cell phones, you know, in 2010 or 13 or something. That's like how fast this is going. I mean, there are new companies IPOing all the time. There's um, pretty like groundbreaking, like just paradigm shifting type stuff that's coming out like every couple of years, which is pretty amazing. And it's been happening for a long time. So it's really cool. Um, it's hard. It's as someone who lives and breathes this stuff and like goes to the conferences, it is like hard to keep up with everything that's going on. Um, and if you even take one step back and start talking about like all the supporting industries that like the finishing equipment and the software. And I mean, it is just a blur of information. So it's really fun. It's really exciting to be a part of. Um, it's hard to probably say where it, you know, it'll be fun to look back at this in five years and say, well, how, you know, how, how close was I to being on the mark there? So like, for instance, now, uh, Stratus has actually just announced that they're getting into, um, I'll call it like binder jetting or I'll call it multi-jet fusion. They have a different name for it. They're calling it their SA, SAF printer. Um, and so HP finally has a competitor. Correct. So HP has, I don't think they have any patents or anything that are like controlling their, their technology or maybe stress has worked around them or something like that. Um, but SAF they're calling selective absorption fusion. If you listen huh. to me talk about how multi-jet fusion worked, it's the exact same thing. It's nylon 12. Uh, it's ink jetting, you know, layer by layer, selectively fusing nylon powder. Um, but I think it's I think that's very telling for a company as big in the industry as Stratasys to switch away from the technologies that they know and love and be pursuing and developing this um, this sort of technology. Right? Is you know their their bread and butter right now is you know they've got their Fortises um, like big industrial we'll call them FDM machines. Nobody's using them for industrial work. Right? They're just they're great. They're awesome model making machines. Um, you know, service bureaus are using them for making large FDM models, but yeah, it's really hard to get an FDM part to the point where you could call it a production component and like you could sell it to a customer and like it wouldn't look 3D printed, right? That's just a hard thing to get to. Um, yeah. They also do the really cool like it's what are those types of printers called? Like where they can do like a million different materials and do clear, but like medical loves and like the hospitals will have them and they'll print oh, like the heart or the brain. You've seen, you know what I'm talking about, but those type of machines, but those are, those are again, I think uh, 3d systems makes machines like that as well, but they're, they're great. I mean, they're like the best model making machines on the market by like far. They can just like, transition seamlessly between like soft and hard plastic and different colors and very, very cool. But again, they're not like a production workhorse machine, right? Cause it's expensive. They're not very strong. Um, they'll keep curing under UV light, you know, they're just not, they're not for production. So interesting to see them wanting a piece of the production pie. I think that's very telling that, that HP's onto something with their technology. So I think that that space is going to get more competitive and that more people are going to jump in, which is, I think good. I think competition is good for HP. Um, you know, it'll it'll drive everybody to keep making a better and better printer and um, bring prices down and stuff. So I think that'll be good. But I think we're going to see that technology around. I've also seen a lot of competitors to Carbon. So Carbon actually is very, very similar to HP, but maybe a few more years. So like six, seven years, they've kind of had the market on the DLS type printers. 
Um, and there are a few other players now in that space as well, working with Henkel, working with um, Loctite. Uh, like when I was at um, when I was at a trade show in 2018, I think that was Rapid TCT 2018 or 2019. Um, they had Loctite sponsored the entire thing, which is really, really <laughs> interesting. But like they were just getting into it as like a chemical company. Right. So they're just like, hey, we make glues and resins and uv curing stuff and they're like okay this whole 3d printing thing is pretty cool so they're making like they're partnering with these companies and making these uv curable um resins that run through these machines which is really cool so anyway i think that space is really going to grow in the past that technology has been very expensive and cost prohibitive compared to multi-jet but um the parts come out and like we're talking no layer lines these parts i mean the the parts that come off of these machines are just amazing and like the material properties are like you know the highest grade um like getting on like the most expensive highest grade thermoplastics that you can that money can buy and like they can just uv resin cure them well so i think as prices come down on that as volume goes i really think that there's a, a compelling case that that technology could beat out even multi-jet fusion on cost. Um, once they figure out cost and production rate, I mean, those type of machines could, you know, that could be the machine where you have like a, uh, a machine in your house that you hit a button and like it just prints like in minutes. Um, like Big Hero 6, like that kind of like remember yep. <laughs> and that and like prints apart for, for, for the robot. I mean, it would look like that. I mean, it literally could just be drawing apart like, you know, go get a cup of coffee and you would come back and you could have a 14 inch tall part just done and waiting for you. So I think that technology has a long ways to go as well. Um, and multi-jet, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. They're, they're developing all sorts of stuff. Some machines are getting better and faster and more accurate. So I just think that the technology is going to keep getting more user-friendly and um, more reliable and more consistent and more be more and more like a CNC. They're going to be more like, you know, when a company is like, we need to open, a, uh, you know, add a machine or whatever. It's not like a big deal. They're just like, okay, we need another mill. They just go buy it. And like their manufacturing engineers know how to run it. They know how to set it up. They like, it's well known. You know what I mean? No executive is going to like take pause and say, okay, do we, you know, do we know how to run this machine? Do we have someone that mm -hmm. can like figure out how to use it? Whereas like, Right now, printing is very much so like that. I think for metals especially, I think the metal systems, like it was, you had to have a PhD on staff to like run a metal 3D printer like 10 years ago. That was like you had to have a bomb-proof explosion laboratory that was separate from your building. You had to have a PhD in like lab coats and the whole nine yards. And now it's like they're starting to integrate like metal printers like, you know, in the same factory, maybe maybe in like a climate controlled room or whatever, but like in the same building as CNC machines and like, you got to have a smart engineer that knows what they're doing, maybe a masters. Um, but the machines are just getting to have like automatic loops and like they, they self-regulate and the machines are just getting smarter and smarter to the point that like, you don't have to have someone like tinkering with the machine to get it to run apart. And I think that's going to be a big, that's going to be something that's really big to gain the adoption to really scale. To the point where, you know, right now it was like medical and like aerospace really were into it. And it's trickling down into like high end, like like automotive and like um, some high end manufacturing. And then for it to really go mainstream, it's going to have to be like as easy as um, running some of the plastic and safe as safe as running some of the plastic printers. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's going to be the direction there. And then the other one for metal printing 
I think the binder jetting metal printing, I'm really excited about that. I think that technology, it's, it needs some work from what I can tell. I haven't personally like worked with it or got sample parts from it yet. Um, it's pretty new. Like Desktop Metal is really the one of the big players in that. But there's a couple other companies that are doing that. Um, but essentially, that would be the analog to digital conversion for metal. If it, if it can be good and reliable and the parts are strong and all that, all that stuff. And the reason is, is you can only make a laser move so fast. Yeah. You, know, you can only, the galvometers and the, the mirrors and everything can only move and flip around so fast. So now what they're doing with DLMS machines, is they're just packing more lasers, which is really expensive. The lasers are a huge piece of the cost that goes into a DLMS machine. So, you know, there's, I think uh, SLM launched a machine with like six lasers in it, which is just crazy. Um, but those six lasers can like all kind of like they can work across like quadrants or like whatever six areas would be, whatever that word yeah. would be. Um, but they <laughs> kind of can like overlap in the middle. So if you're printing like one four inch part in the middle of the, of the printer, all six lasers can work on it at the same time. So you can really go a lot faster. You can go like six times faster. Cruising. The algorithms to to produce that got to be just insane. The pathing and everything. So I... I don't know if it's going to be we're just going to pack more lasers in or, you know, and co- what companies do right now is they'll have like they'll have like you were saying before, like 50 machines or 10 machines or something like that to produce the amount of like the print, the pounds of steel that you need in 10,000 pounds of steel parts every year, you're going to need five machines, you know. So does that are we going to have quad laser, you know, um, eight laser, 16 laser machines? I don't think so. I have I have a feeling that it's going to go to um, a more digital process where it can be like a masking process. And I think um, similar to the multi-jet fusion and the DLS printers like we talked about, um, I think that the binder jetting printers are going to be a metal printers are going to be a really big piece of the market for those who don't need like the ultimate highest strength parts, um, which I think a lot of people honestly don't need titanium they don't need super alloys they don't need that stuff they just need a steel part Um, i think a lot of manufacturing is like that and they would benefit immensely from a metal binder jetting type system um no i think and i think the dlms will still be there for aerospace and medical and um you know really high zoot stuff but i think that a lot of that volume that is trying to make dlms work and just buying lots of machines and stuff they're going to move to these binder jetting technologies so those are those are my predictions. I'm going to leave them pretty wide open like that so that I have a really high chance of uh, being right in five years. But that might honestly be the next three years. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, it you know, in five years, there might be some other just paradigm shifting technology that, you know, is just being dreamed up by somebody in their garage right now, you know, wants to print a frog for their for their kid and uh, is just coming up with something way out of left field. So, yeah, it's a. For any of any people that are in the bucket of, um, and I think I, we talked about this before, but for, but for those who are like, you know, the the printer guy of your friend group or whatever, you've always been interested in it, or you just think it's cool, just know there is like an industry for it, and it's out there, and you know, it's a super weird group of people, bunch of super eclectic individuals, um, getting some weird conversations at two in the morning, you know, at the at the bar down. Uh, at the, at the hotel where the conference center is, but a um, bunch of awesome people who are super passionate about what they do. It's a lot of fun, some really exciting stuff going on. So, you know, just know that opportunity is, uh, is out there for you if it's something you're interested in. I hope this was 
just a shotgun approach at saying, hey, this is where it started. This is where it's at right now. If you're interested in more production focused uh, 3D printing, and I think where it's going, going forward into the future. So trying to keep that as concise as possible. I knew this was going to be a little bit longer cast, but uh, I think we did a did an okay job of it. Um, any closing remarks, Mark? I knew this was going to be a Michael heavy episode, so I kind of just let you roll with it. And I think uh, our listeners will really appreciate all the the knowledge and research put into this. So no, I think it was a, a good app with lots of good information. Well, sounds good. I sounds like we're signing off here. So um, again, Mark and Michael, uh, and Mark, can you run through the uh, the podcasting details? Have we uh, have we sorted out how to figure out um, getting back on Reddit again? Or we're perma banned, right? I, I did get unbanned from one, but I can't promote in there or else I'll get banned again. So <laughs> I'm just trying to mingle with the people in these different Reddits, hope, hoping that they see my username is for the future pod and they, you know, connect the dots and <laughs> find us. But, yeah. you know, yeah. we're always looking for that uh, advice, people. If you, if you know how to promote a podcast, email us at for the future pod at gmail.com. So F O U R for the future pod at gmail.com but until next week i think we're signing off so thanks again for listening like rate us share we're on apple Podcasts, spotify you know we're on all of them so thanks again for listening and uh, we'll see you next week thanks again everyone have a good one bye